The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I have Marie Bigelow, and Marie is the author of The Sacred Gift of Childbirth, so I'm so excited to have you here with me. Thank you for joining me today, and we're going to be talking about, um, of course, all things birth, but specifically music and birth, and I'm really excited to explore this topic with you. Well, thank you. I'm excited to talk about it. So I always ask, how did you get started in the birth world? Well... Looking back at my childhood, I definitely think I was always interested in hearing the birth stories of the women around me. But when I really got sucked in was when I was getting my undergraduate degree at Utah State University. I was a young newlywed, and I was going to school with one of my best friends, who was also a young newlywed. But she got pregnant, you know, a couple years before my husband and I conceived. And so I kind of watched her experience this first pregnancy. And she was always reading and we worked together and she would come in and talk about like Ina May and Dr. Sears and all of these things. And she called me the morning after she had her baby and was like, I had my baby and I did it all natural. And I was just amazed. I didn't know anybody who had ever had a baby without an epidural. And during that same semester in school, I was studying music therapy and we were in a specialties course where we learned about all of the populations that music therapists work with. And a lot of music therapists work um, like in a nursing home or special education. And we had, I'm not kidding, maybe 20 minutes on music and childbirth. And it was kind of like this light bulb went off and I was like, that is what I want to do. Wow. Um, music therapy. And so it was like that night we're searching online, how to become a doula. And so I was actually training, doing all of my doula certification the same year I finished my degree. So that when I graduated, I was ready to specialize in music therapy. Okay. So what was your degree then specifically? Music therapy. Music therapy. Okay. And then now you're applying music therapy to birth. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So um, how does... Tell me about birth and childbirth. When does it start? I mean, our music and childbirth. I mean, for those of us, I'm not super musical. I love music. I love listening to the radio, but I'm not super musical. So how, kind of take us through like what music looks like in prenatal, the prenatal experience for both musicians and those of us that are not super musical. Okay. I mean, it's pretty much the same. All you have to do is love listening to music to have it be effective. And it's really just learning what type of music is going to be helpful at the right time. Now, this is a skill that everybody already has in their life. Everybody who's listening to music. We have our playlist that we listen to when we go on a road trip because it makes it fun to drive and the time goes by fast when you have that music that you love. We have the music that we go to when we're sad and depressed, like when our heart's broken, we're grieving and we have that music that matches how we feel and it helps us feel the way that we feel. And so it's just teaching women what to expect during childbirth and teaching them the tools. So I'll teach them 
you know, the normal stuff, relaxation, breathing, position changes, but we add it to appropriate music so that it becomes more meaningful. So it's just like, if you, you know, you go to a wedding and it's wonderful and then their song plays and it's amazing because it brings that feeling and the emotion into the room. And that's you want to bring to your birth of like, okay, right now I'm doing relaxation and I need to find the perfect music that will help me relax. And so you don't have to be a musician to have music be effective. You just have to be somebody who already likes listening to music, which most people already do like that. So you're basically helping people find their birth song, quote, (laughs) and then helping them like learn to relax to that so that it becomes a trigger for relaxation during labor? Yes. So the cool thing about music is we all respond to it, whether we want to or not, or whether we practice. So that's why if you go to like a basketball game or professional sporting event, they're playing jock jams, right? It's loud, Mm -hmm. it's fast, because they know that if they play loud, fast music, we will get amped up. Mm -hmm. And it's the same way like a church. If a church really values like that quiet, reverent atmosphere, then they're playing like that soft, quiet music when you walk in and it tells you how to act. And we, as humans, we listen to the music. Our heart rate will try to match. It's called entrainment. Our heart rate will entrain to the beat, whether we want it to or not. So what? What? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. it's, It's called like a phenomenological physiological response. Like you don't have any control over it because we're rhythmic creatures. So our heart rate is rhythmic. Our breathing is rhythmic. And we want to be in rhythm with the world that's around us. Okay, so if my child is having tantrum, I can throw on some calming music and it works not just because it's calming, but because it actually slows down their heart rate? Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. It might not be instant. Like if you're fighting against something, you would want to kind of start high and work your way down. Yeah. Um, Because if it's too opposite of where you are, then you kind of fight with it. And that makes sense. too. Like a lot of times people think like, oh, I want to bring, bring like my favorite dance music or my pump you up music. And then they turn it on and it doesn't work with what they're doing because the key to birth is often relaxation. Mm-hmm. And so if it doesn't work with how you feel or what's going on, it's not as supportive. <laughs> you can kind of start off a level and slowly bring it down or slowly. Bring well, I've it totally been at births where the music is jamming and then all of a sudden the mom will be like, turn it off. Yes. Like, <laughs> That we're like, okay, it's off, it's off, it's off. <laughs> yes. So then, you know, it's, not, it's not the right music for the right time. It has to match what you're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But going back, so you said like the music can trigger you. So then once you kind of know, like, I want to use this type of music when I'm doing relaxation, I want to use this music for my imagery, um, whatever you're working on, then the more you practice and you do get this, it's called an autogenic response, which basically just means an automatic response. And so it takes away that pressure of memorizing. A lot of people are worried that they take they read up, they take the class, and then they get into their labor and they're like, "What do I do? I don't remember." Mm-hmm. You practice with your music. You turn it on, and your body knows what to do because if you have done the same breathing technique or the same imagery exercise every single time you listen to that music, you'll do that when you listen to the music, whether you remember to do it or not. Your body will just naturally do it. Yeah. Wow, so that's so really cool. Effective and it's really non-intimidating because all you 
you just, you just have to listen. You just have to listen and breathe. So I want to talk more about music and the postpartum period and and bonding. But first I want to ask you about your book. Tell us about what made you decide to write a book and then what's in your book? (laughs) Um, There's a ton in my book. What I really wanted to do was give like a really concise resource that has everything that you need to know to understand. So it has a ton of statistics, a ton of data. Um, I'm a really scientific minded person yeah (laughs) I really want to know like show me the data like why are we doing this and so I have a big emphasis on evidence-based practice we do things because the evidence says to we don't do things because culture says to because that's how my mom did it that's how my sister did it like let's really look at making decisions based on evidence yeah and a lot of things have changed based on evidence just in the last 15 years I've noticed yeah that that even what we think of as the very stagnant, very, uh, uh, you know, the culture, the industry that you, that you never change. And now things like cord clamping or the routine use of forceps or, or uh, those are all changing just even in the last 15 years based on evidence. Absolutely. And I mean, I've been a doula for 17 years and I've seen so much positive change. Um, But when I started writing my book, it was really at the beginning of my career was when I got the idea. I was having just some connections of my own as I was attending versus a doula. I was having my own children by then um, and just really researching and thinking like, wow, birth is so much more than I ever thought it was. Mm -hmm. It's not just this really hard, scary, physical thing that you do to have a baby. It's this amazing physiological experience that changes your brain chemistry, changes the way you bond with people, changes the way you behave, changes the way you feel for the good or for the better, or for the good or for the worse. It would be wonderful. It was just for the good and the better, but for better or for worse, this experience changes who you are and I just felt like back then I was the only one feeling that way. Obviously, I wasn't, and there are plenty of women now, and it's so much easier for us to find each other now that there's social media. Oh, yeah. But when I became a doula, I didn't even have a cell phone. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't have, sorry, you didn't have what? A cell phone. Oh, a cell phone. Yeah. So, okay, I, that dates you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> people are like, how are you a doula? I'm like, I don't think I left the house. I think I just waited for people. Yeah, you just call. had to sit sit at home and wait for your call. Oh, my gosh, that's stress. Oh, wow. Okay, you just took me to a place that I never thought. (laughs) I mean. I just just was having all of these ideas and experiences that I just really wanted to share. I was like, what would it be like if more women understood this? And would it change the way that they felt? Would it change the way that they birthed? And, you know, I I started writing it almost a decade before it ever even came out. We were on like a family road trip. My husband and I were talking about it in the car and we stopped at like a little grocery store and I had like a pad of paper and a pen and I stayed up all night and just like scribbled out every idea I had. And then I just kind of, it was stagnant. It, I needed to learn a lot more. I needed to attend a lot mm-hmm. more births. Um, and then it was a few years down the road. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm really ready to to say what I want to say and just have a a great resource where people can see all of this amazing physiological 
things that they don't know about and also have this awesome resource of what does the science say and how do I make a decision? You know, women feel really overwhelmed because one person's telling them something and another person's telling them something else and their mom gave birth a different way and they don't know what to do and they don't know how they feel. And so I just wanted to be like, here is something that you can read that doesn't tell you how to feel, but it tells you what is true and what we know. And it gives you a way to make decisions for yourself. So what are some of the most um, powerful evidence-based discoveries that you made? Or I know, I know you're not the one like doing all the discovering, but what are some of the ahas that you, that you put together while studying this research? When I was really learning about the hormonal component of birth, that was a really big turning point for me of really understanding that when you are in labor, your brain chemistry is changing. And it's changing in this really amazing, positive way. And when yeah, it's supposed to change. This is part of the biological response. Otherwise, you don't properly, properly bond or heal, right? Yes. And it really, like your birth sets the stage for how you feel after your birth and how, you know, it has an impact on breastfeeding and bonding and self-esteem and depression. And really noticing that the research was showing that if you got an induction, if you had an epidural, it hindered that process. And I thought, I don't think women understand that. I don't think that they really know that when they ask for that epidural, that it could mean that they won't be able to breastfeed tomorrow. Yeah. I just think there's like that huge disconnect. That was a huge turning point for me when I really understood that. And I just thought, I bet if women knew that, they would. It's not maybe not avoid all intervention, but just think about it differently. Yeah. And think about birth differently and think about birth as not like this is scary and this is overwhelming and it's gonna be hard, but to look at it as like this is this amazing opportunity for me to enter motherhood with all of these hormones and all of these maternal instincts and this feeling of accomplishment and increased bonding with my baby and my husband that it could maybe change the way that they went into their birth how they felt. Yeah, yeah. And I know, okay, so some people are very scientific and they want to know all the answers. And I, I'm one of those. If I'm, if I'm going to go all in, I want to know why I'm going all in, right? But mm-hmm. then there's the spiritual com- component and your book is called um, The Sacred Gift of Childbirth. The word sacred is a spiritual word. So how do you weave the scientific evidence-based data and turn it into a sacred experience. How about that for a question? Go for I that. <laughs> love that question because I am a firm believer that you can believe in God and science simultaneously. And birth makes me feel that more than anything else because I can look at birth and think, here is the science that when I'm pregnant, I am creating all of these hormones that are making receptors in my brain So that when I give birth, these receptors are flooded with oxytocin so that I feel like a mom and I've never been a mom. (laughs) Talk dirty, talk talk science, girlfriend. (laughs) And that is scientific, but I can also look at it and say, it's purposeful. And there is a divine design behind this that really has a lot of well thought out planning so that birth can lead to a good outcome, not just not just a living outcome, not just like, oh, a mom and a baby are alive, but that they are thriving and that their relationship 
is so crucial and all of these these things are coming together to make it more successful that to me is god right there and it's god's love and it's telling me the exact same thing that science is telling me and i love that they're telling me the exact same thing that's really cool so your book is um oh so what is one of the other things you said hormones you loved learning about the the science behind hormones but something else that you loved that that you spent a lot of time in in the book um well, maybe not loved, but I really wanted to discuss cesarean birth because the American cesarean rate is so much higher than it should be. So the World Health Organization estimates that between 5 and 10% of women cannot safely give birth vaginally. And so for that 5 to 10%, we really want to celebrate cesarean birth. Hallelujah. Again, and I don't ever want to say like, we shouldn't be having cesareans, but we also need to be looking and saying, okay, well, if at most 10% need it, why are 33% having it? And what are the long-term ramifications of that many women having cesareans? And so I broke down my cesarean chapter really saying like, you know, here's the reasons why doctors are saying they're giving cesareans. And here's the evidence reasons why we should. And they're not the same list. Mm-hmm. Um, so really just showing women, what does it mean to have a cesarean? How does it change the physiology? How does it impede with breastfeeding? How does it um, increase postpartum depression? And long-term, you know, how does it affect the woman who wants six kids and her first one is born cesarean? What if she lives in an area that doesn't support vaginal birth after cesarean? What are the economic ramifications for a family having an expensive surgery? So there's a lot of things to look at when you really as a whole, our culture is very nonchalant about a major abdominal surgery when it actually carries quite a bit of risk unless you have a real reason to get one. Mm -hmm. So I really want my readers and, you know, my doula clients, people who take my class to really be able to look and say, I'm being offered this intervention. Am I being offered this because I need it? Or am I being offered it because they're just allowed to offer it? And do I want to say yes? Do I want to open up risk? You know, the thing about birth now is I think we should be having the best birth the world has ever seen. We, we know everything. We don't know yeah. everything. Well, we, we have no know. excuse. Yeah, we have no yeah. excuse, especially in the United States. We have no excuse to not have awesome births. We have all the technology we need when things go wrong. We have all the information we need to have uh, a great low risk birth without intervention. We've got childbirth educators, doulas, nurses, like we have all these people who are like, let's have these great births and then we're still not having them. And there's no reason for it. And so to really just give women that empowerment of like, you have every tool you need to have an amazing birth. Yeah, but you have to know what those tools are. You have to understand the benefits and risks. And you kind of have to be able to decipher if you medically need it or not, because you can go to a hospital and get an intervention, whether you need it or not, because you can get it based on want, which is fine. But why, why are we letting people pick something that they want if they don't actually know what they're picking? So back to the data then. Oh, how do I phrase this question? It sounds almost, okay, so I'm just going to say what I think I hear you saying and tell me if I'm correct. 
um, it feels like your data, your love of data gives the birthing person all of the information she needs to then make a spiritual decision, right? So an informed decision for sure. An informed decision, but, but it's all, it's also like, how can you make us, I mean, is it true to, to say you can't make a spiritual decision without knowing some of the facts or, I mean, where do we cross the line between staying in paralysis analysis by paralysis analysis, analysis, paralysis, that's it. Analysis paralysis or going straight to the heart and going, what do I, what does this baby need? What do I feel is right? Where, where is where does science belong in that spectrum? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think it's different. <laughs> don't that answer. I don't know. Is it I different for everyone then? For everybody. You know, I do think that women deep down can know what is best for them. Mm-hmm. And I can look and say the data says the best thing for a low risk birth is to go into labor on your own and to not have intervention. That's what the data says. But I don't know who you are. You know, so I don't know if you have trauma. I don't know if you have mental illness. I don't know if your marriage is falling apart and you have nothing left to give this day. And so that's where that kind of personal revelation, spiritual confirmation, whatever you want to call it, really comes in. We're like, you can teach somebody something, but only they know. And some women will say like, I can't, like, I can't do it today. Like I, you know, maybe they lost a parent a couple of weeks ago, or maybe they mm-hmm. are in the middle of a messy divorce. And if you don't have that emotional strength, the physical need of birth is very draining. Yeah. Maybe they know that for them, it's better to have the epidural and to maybe say, well, I'm not going to have this hormonal high, but it's worth it because I don't have what it takes to do this. And so really giving women that freedom of saying like, here's the data, here's the information. But really, only you know who you are and where you are and what you can truly give this birth. Yeah, yeah. So in all the preparation, it all comes down to that day, that moment, what feels right. Mm-hmm. And some women really care. Like some women that I work with, they want that birth high. They want to have that natural birth and they want to feel all that oxytocin and all those endorphins. And they want that sense of like, I did it. And there are other women who are like, yeah, I don't care. Like that is not enticing to me. Like they don't want it. It doesn't sound good enough to have to do what you need to do to get it. Totally. You know, just respect that. Like not everybody is going to be as blown away by birth as I am, even though I really want them to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's so amazing. You're not biased or anything. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So back to the music. So um, we talked about learning like practicing for birth learning text relaxation techniques and and marrying them with music so that music then triggers your body so how does a woman go about picking her the best pre the best music for her labor um well the first thing is she has to like the music you know you want to be putting your attention on the music so we know with contractions the woman who's sitting there going Oh no, here it comes. It's going to be worse than the last one. Oh, it is. And they're only (laughs) thinking about the contraction. Then their perception of how difficult that contraction is, is high. 
Now, when you have a woman who's thinking about something else, whether it's the music or maybe somebody's massaging her, and then we're putting less attention on the contraction, and then the perception of the contraction is different. Mm-hmm. But the more she loves her music, the more attention she can put on the music instead mm-hmm. of on the contraction. So that's a really, really big piece of it. You have to want to listen to it. If you don't want to listen to it, then you won't be listening to it and it won't be a good distraction. So you want so, it to be a really positive distraction. So I didn't practice to music, but I did put together a playlist and this was my first child. So 16 years ago. And I know, I, I, I remember I went and started labor and started getting pretty intense. And I, I found this song on my playlist and I just hit repeat, 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 repeat. And I probably listened to this song for like, I don't know, an hour straight. It was just one song and it's on repeat. Every time like a wave would come over me and the music would just kind of, anyway, my mom said, you know, what are you doing? How are you doing? And I was like, three minutes apart, one minute long. And my mom's like, turns off the music, (laughs) takes me to the hospital. Anyway, I came back after the birth and I was like, what is that song? I've got to listen to that song again. I want to know what that song was. I'm like, what was it? Tell me. I know I could never find the song again. Not right after the baby was born, our computer crashed. And anyway, I've just been hoping to hear that song again, but I don't know if I would even recognize it like in real life, because I, I just remember almost being trans, like, like that song was so like, I just felt like it was like matching my waves, matching the way my body was moving. And I never had that experience again with the other babies, but this is what you're describing is when the music can help you, you know, ride those waves. Right. And if, yes, absolutely. And that is really, you know, the ideal, what you would want it to be. And you know, not everybody has that. Like I didn't have that with all my births. I definitely had it with my last birth, with my fourth child. I had one song and it was just repeat, repeat, repeat. Yep, yep. Perfect. Um, so, I, I had one client that put on hymns, a certain hymn in particular over and over again. And as the filmmaker, an hour and a half of that song was a little much for me, but it helped her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, again, yeah, well, again. And religious music can be really helpful for women who are religious or spiritual, if they have, you know, hymns or church music that's very um, supportive or inspiring, you know, you can get through hard things, that can be really powerful, especially if they're using it kind of outside, mm-hmm. to find strength, and then they already have that autogenic response. That's that true. That's true. You know, I, it brings me a story, you can, they can find it on my website, on the Touch of Life, but um, Marcia, she was a, she's a midwife from Liberia and she came over here to give birth and, it, you know, out of her element, right? And then she was, things were getting heavy and she asked us to Google a certain artist that was back from home. And I do, now that you're saying that, I remember her turning, we turning on that music and her whole body just relaxing. And then she started singing with this gospel music from home and it was just like magic to her. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And I really would love to see more women singing or chanting during their birth. It's really not something that American culture prepares you for. Like nobody wants to be the woman in the middle of the room on a birth ball chanting, you know? Yeah. (laughs) But, but there's so much that singing can do. It really gets like your blood flowing and it gets your immune system working. It patterns your breath. It releases endorphins. It releases neurotransmitters that make you feel good. Um, Plus, so you have to relax, right, to make the yeah, sound at all. You and do so, have to. And so I would love to see women singing more and even singing to their babies. 
um, singing in utero, singing after they're born, singing to them for years after. There's so much benefit in singing with just your physiological body responses, like I just listed, mm. um, but also with bonding mm-hmm. and affection. And it's something that I wish was a bigger part of American parenting culture. It's true. We've kind of lost the art of lullabies. Yeah. And the wonderful thing about lullabies is you're training your kids the same way that you train yourself with labor. So you say, here's my labor music. Every time I listen to it, I'm going to breathe this way. You know, I'm going to, I tell my clients, you know, breathe in strength, breathe in courage, breathe in what you need and exhale what you don't need. Exhale any fears you have, any muscle tension, any toxicity, and you're training yourself to do that. And then your baby can be born and you can sing to them and you train them that, you know, every time mom wraps you in a blanket and sings you this song, you get tired. <laughs> and yeah. it's really nice to train your baby to be tired and to help them settle. And so my husband and I, we actually wrote a lullaby for all of our children. And we, I still sing it to my baby who's now eight because there's no one else to sing to. But <laughs> I remember when my oldest was like three or four years old and I was, I started singing to her to calm her down because she was really upset. And she looked at me and said, don't sing to me. You always make me tired. <laughs> and I was like, that's the point. <laughs> that's why I've been doing it. That's awesome. I never thought about that. But that's, that, yeah, you're basically setting them up for a, um, yeah, trigger. Although triggers are not usually a positive thing. But in this case. Yeah, just a, an automatic response to the music. So it can yeah. be really powerful to just be like, all right, let's figure out how our nap time, our snuggle time, you know, and this isn't new. I mean, every, you can find tons of baby care books that talk about the bedtime routine, you know, whether it's the bath or the swaddle or the nursing. Um, and the singing can just be another part of that bedtime routine. I found it to be a lot easier than a nighttime bath and massage because you could do it pretty quick. And I just love to sing. Um, but it can be a really powerful thing. And babies also really love being on somebody's chest when they're sung to, because they can feel like the vibrations of the voice, mm-hmm. especially dad's chest because it's bigger. And so his vocal cords are thicker and the rumble vibration is stronger. And so just laying your baby on your chest and humming or singing can be so soothing. Yeah. Wow. I'm about ready to go crawl up on my husband's chest. Sing to me, honey. <laughs> yeah. It does sound dreamy, but you're right. As a tiny little human curled up on the person that, that you trust and then feeling that vibration and hearing those tones that mean relaxation and safety and warmth. That's, yeah. that's and then you amazing. Add a skin to skin element. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the oxytocin and the bonding. So you can really like yeah, even talking about it, like I'm uh, bonding here. <laughs> Marie and I are like best friends now. <laughs> I <know. laughs> Wow, that's so cool. And so what do you think about, um, so I guess it stands stands to reason that this would help in the postpartum period as well, regulating emotions and thought patterns. and. Absolutely. Um, I really encourage my clients to do a whole playlist of oxytocin. Um, and you can get oxytocin. Well, I guess I should explain what oxytocin is in case somebody doesn't know who's listening. Oxytocin is the hormone of love and bonding. So it's kind of what gives you butterflies in your stomach when you're dating. And the more oxytocin you have, 
it kind of codes you for that long-term relationship. So oxytocin is really important postpartum. We're creating oxytocin when we breastfeed, and we want to have a lot of interaction with our babies with high oxytocin so that we really kind of imprint on each other Mm -hmm. um, and really like love each other's smell and want to be with each other. And so oxytocin is really, really critical for the mother-child relationship. And when you can have a playlist that creates that oxytocin beforehand, then you can use that afterwards. So let's say you had maybe an emergency cesarean or something happened and you didn't have that natural birth you wanted and you're feeling like, oh no, I missed out on all that oxytocin. You can turn on your playlist, your oxytocin playlist. And the more you play that, if you've trained yourself to create oxytocin beforehand, then you can really increase that oxytocin after the birth. So beforehand, if you are creating oxytocin while you're pregnant, does the baby then have a reaction in utero to music? Can they hear it? Can they like, yeah. What is I mean, the... if you're, if you're listening with earbuds all the time, then no, obviously <laughs> it doesn't it. go through the bloodstream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Darn it. Um, but yes, if you're listening to music, your baby can hear it, you know, about halfway through your pregnancy. And so all of those familiar sounds will help a baby feel oriented and safe after birth. So when we look at like newborn cortisol levels, if they're hearing their parents' voices or music that they know, they have lower levels of stress hormones. And so music can be really powerful, not just for the mom, but for the baby too, to kind of help them be calm and alert. Mm -hmm. So if you are releasing uh, oxytocin, then that, does that cross the placenta? Does the baby then feel oxytocin pre-birth or is that just for the mama? I don't know. It's a good question. Hmm. Yeah, that is a good I question. was wondering if it crosses the placenta. You asked me something I didn't know, dang it. Oh no. Well, but I was just wondering because they've said that babies like will recognize music from before they were born if they heard it, like a certain lullaby or whatever. And so I'm wondering if they just recognize the music or if they're actually having an oxytocin response, like if they're actually having a chemical experience. Know, that's such an awesome question. I mean, we know that babies pick up on their mother's stress levels or lack thereof. Yeah. But I don't know if I, I mean, I can't say for sure if like the oxytocin is crossing the placenta. But I mean, we do know that when something positive happens to mom, it affects baby in a positive way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's got to be some sort of chemical something going on. I was just wondering, oxytocin is the chemical, so... All right, cool. So, um, so we so we talked about your book and music, and I kind of want to ask you about some of the big decisions that moms make and the crossroads they make, and what how you feel these decisions should be approached. What's your advice to your clients? Um, well, a really really hard decision that a lot of women are faced with is induction. Um, you know, the research says we don't have to induce until mom's at forty two weeks. That's what the data says. But culture says, if you reach your due date, you should look at inducing. And right. then culture also says, if you want a cool birthday or grandma can only be here this week, you know, there's a lot of reasons we induce that aren't medically necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just really try to help my clients navigate that decision. It's a decision that so many women make because it's just offered. And a lot of times women think, well, not that's not a derogatory, not just 
women, but when people are offered something, they think, do I need it? And the same goes for somebody who's preparing to give birth. So if a doctor says, you know, we could induce you, there's part of that brain that thinks, is my doctor offering this because I need it? Or is this an option? It's really hard for them to know the difference. Um, So I really want my clients to understand, like, when is it really medically necessary to have Mm -hmm. an induction? And if you're choosing a non-necessary induction, what risks are you bringing into your birth? And that's different for everyone. Because if this is your fourth kid and you've had three vaginal births, no problem, and your cervix is already dilated to a three, it's probably going to go pretty smoothly. Yeah. If you're a first-time mom who's never given birth, whose cervix is unfavorable, then we know you're so more likely to have a cesarean. A year of doing this podcast and nobody has ever talked about the Bishop's score. So... All you pregnant women, if somebody says induction, Google Bishop's score. It's fascinating, but it's actually a calculation of how likely your induction is to go smoothly. And I know um, I I have a close friend whose doctor said, this is really important. We have to induce. And she said, okay. So she Googled, well, she asked me and I said, Bishop score. So she Googled the formula and then she was able to ask the doctor, okay, so what, how far am I effaced? What's the baby station? And she asked him all of the components used for this calculation without telling him what she was doing. Cause you know, it's just questions. And then she came up with this number and she's like, Sarah, like this is an unfavorable number. Like, <laughs> I should not have a duct in induction, right? And so I'm saying you love the data. That's data you can give yourself. And I was like, yeah, that's actually right on the border. I mean, you've had four kids. So knowing you, you're probably going to be okay. But that is a pretty unfavorable number. And she's like, okay, well, I feel confident telling the doctor no then. And I was like, you know, <laughs> your thing, you know, but it just gave her the the number, the data, because the doctor's pressuring her so hard. And then when she t- could see the cold, hard numbers in the Bishop's score calculation, she was like, hmm doesn't seem like a good idea and that's the amazing thing of data is data empowers women and families to make good choices for themselves because if we don't know what the choices mean if we don't know what the ramifications of our choices are we're not empowered Mm -hmm. we're just we're allowing ourselves to be acted upon and some people don't mind that but if you're a personality who's like why am I doing this? Or what, what's the right thing? And I don't know, you have to have the data, you have to understand what it means. And I think a lot of women just really don't understand that an induction means most likely a longer labor. It almost always means an epidural, it increases that risk of cesarean by three times for first time moms, because, mm-hmm. you know, poor positioning of the baby. And then you're not having any of the awesome stuff that helps you through birth. You're not making endorphins. Your contractions are longer and closer together than they would be with a natural birth. So it's harder to cope with and they're less effective. And so I think sometimes we just think it's casual. It's like, oh yeah, I'll just get induced and have my baby. But they don't really know that an induction, but it's probably going to be a lot longer, more difficult. And it's less likely to 
It's not always longer, but what you do is give up uh, autonomous control. You give up your control earlier in the state, in the process, which I think makes this it feel longer. Because in a normal labor, you may be in labor, light labor for like three days and active labor there for the last eight hours. But if you go in to be induced, you've still got to go through the early labor. But you, instead of doing it at home or grocery shopping or walking the mall, you're now doing it under the care of the doctor and that can feel a little bit more stressful or a lot more stressful. Are a lot longer and a lot harder when you're Mm -hmm. hooked up to an IV in a hospital room. When you start a clock too, they don't like, I know with mine, they said, well, you're not, you're not progressing. So we could either just stop the pit, send you home and call this a failed induction, but you know, your baby might die because he's, you know, so big (laughs) or could break your water and get this baby here. So you, you just, you just give up a lot of time, a lot of like flow when you start letting someone manage your hormones. And when a medical professional says something as unkind as, well, we could let you go and your baby could die. Mm -hmm. It really takes the choice away from you because nobody, nobody out of a room after somebody has said that to them, whether it's true or not, it might've been true or it might've been manipulation. And you don't know unless you have that information on your own. Oh, and, and you can't. Not while you're in labor. You can't make the discernment whether they're being manipulative or if they really believe. Well, that, and that, that comes back to trusting your provider. I mean, if you, if you trust your provider, you found a good provider for you, then you can trust their words a little bit more. But I think, at least in my case, it was mostly manipulation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I hate hearing stories like that. And I even actually too common. in my book about providers, you know, teaching readers, what is the difference between a midwife and a doctor? Which one is better for you? There are better providers for certain personality types. Oh, say it again. We're going to put that on a meme. Yes. Yes. <laughs> say it again. <laughs> so I really think like, you know, I really hope that my book just helps people say like, this is important to me. That's not important to me. This rings true to me. I don't care about that. You know, at the end of my book, I have an assessment where it just has a whole list of things and people rate themselves zero, one or two of whether they it's true, false or neutral for them. And then it gives them a score at the end and it kind of tells them like what the strengths and weaknesses are of that score. You know, so if you score really low on my assessment, you're, you're hardcore. You want a natural birth. Now, if you're scoring four points out of 50, you probably shouldn't have an OB. You should have a midwife. You should have someone who's as hardcore as you are for natural birth. But the downside of that is if you don't get that natural birth, that's going to be really hard on you emotionally. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of really like assessing your personality and your preferences beforehand so that you can prepare, so that you know, so that you can go to your husband or your mother or your best friend and say, I want this so bad. I might not be okay if I don't get it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's going to somebody who scores really high and is just like, give me everything and really sitting them down and saying, yes, you, you should have an OB. And you probably, if you had a natural birth, you wouldn't like it anyway. You know, even if I told you all of the amazing things about natural birth, you're going to hate it. You don't want it. But you still need to know what the risks are, because if you sign up for every intervention, you might not be happy with the outcome. Mm-hmm. And so it's really just kind of helping people find out like where you are on the spectrum so that you can really know how you're going to feel 
with what type of provider, what type of birth. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay. So where can people find your book and find more about you and connect with all the things? Um, You can find everything on my website, which is just mariebigelow.com. You can find the book on Amazon. You can find it at Barnes and Noble, Deseret Books. Um, You can find me on Facebook. And you, you take private clients, correct? You're in Montana? I'm in Idaho. Oh, Idaho. Okay. Somewhere up North and cold. Got it. Okay. (laughs) Boise's not cold. Boise's okay. <laughs> Boise, Boise is a little too hot right now. But. Oh yeah, everything's really hot right now. It was 104 this week here. And, oh. uh, but I mean, I so yes, I attend births in Boise in the in the area. But I also like I have a self study course where I have um, you know students from anywhere. Awesome, and, we and, just, and they know, can find that on your website. Yep, perfect. And it's basically, you get the book, you get the playlist, you kind of learn it all on your own. And then after you've gone through it all, we set up a phone call or a Zoom and I answer all your questions. I give you a pep talk, explain things that you don't quite understand. Perfect. Okay, so that's Marie, M-A-R-I-E-B-I-G-E-L-O-W.com. You can reach out to Marie or you can also, if you have any feedback on this episode or or can't remember that, email or that domain, you can also always email me at media at birthcircle.com and I will get you in touch with Marie. Thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Like I can't believe I got an entire year and never talked about music and childbirth like this. So, <laughs> well, I'm glad that I was the person that got to talk to you about it. I think it's so just fun. so fun. Like your love of the math, the left brain scientific, and then the, the artist part, you know, the music, how you've kind of married the two is really cool. I love it all. I'm just like, give me all of it. All <laughs> oh, so birthy, birthy. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Please visit us at birthcircle.com. Join our Facebook groups or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience. 